everyone, and welcome to this episode of the 2022 Big Read podcast series. I'm Alex Anderson, and today I'm joined by three wonderful guests, Frankie Knuckles, Narim Kim, and Veronica Ahmed. Today's episode is entitled Gothic Feminisms and the Female Gothic, and we'll be discussing how women, womanhood, femininity function in Sylvia Moreno-Garcia's novel, Mexican Gothic, and in the Gothic tradition more generally. Let's get started by allowing our special guests introduce themselves. Frankie, would you like to kick us off? Sure thing, Alex. Uh, My name is Frankie. I use they, them pronouns. I am a PhD student in the philosophy department here at Purdue. I have a bachelor's of arts from Vassar College in English, philosophy, and queer studies. So I'm very interested in the overlap of themes going on in Mexican Gothic. Some of my work right now is on local journalism, on queer readings of media, I'm kind of all over the place in a scholarly sense. So yeah, that's what I am up to, who I am, some stuff about me. Hi, everyone. I'm Narim. I'm a fifth-year PhD student in the English department. (laughs) My dissertation is on contemporary American multi-ethnic women's novels. I'm interested in how they use magic and the affect of wonder to kind of elicit ethical responses or ethical relatings. Broadly, I'm interested in aesthetics and affect and their relations to ethics. That's it. I think that's (laughs) all about me right now. Nice to meet y'all. Hi, y'all. I'm Veronica. I am a fourth year PhD student in American studies. I concentrate on African-American studies and women, gender, sexuality studies. I just passed my exams. And so I am getting ready to propose my dissertation. My research focuses on Black women's literary contributions. And particularly, I'm focused on the Black women's literary renaissance of the 70s and 80s. I'm really interested in sort of the intergenerational work around literary work with Black women, particularly how the generation that was reading and writing in the 70s and 80s influenced 21st century Black women's experience of those texts. Um, I'm really excited to jump in some of the themes in Mexican Gothic. Excellent. Thank you so much for those introductions. I'm thrilled that we have kind of an eclectic mix of interests represented here. So I think it'll be a phenomenal conversation. As always, for the folks at home, we are going to reveal some spoilers in this episode. So if you haven't finished the book and you don't want to hear any spoilers, feel free to listen to this episode after you finish the novel. Additionally, because women and femme-presenting folk often experience sexual or sexualized violence in Gothic texts, we may discuss or hint about some graphic, explicit, or otherwise disturbing content. So if you prefer not to listen to that, no hard feelings there. Historically, many readers, particularly women, femme-identifying folk, or other non-men, have had an uncomfortable relationship with Gothic literature because of the tradition's often violent treatment of women. When you think about representations of women in Gothic literature, what characters and texts come to mind? What qualities do those characters have? How do those characters move through their respective texts? Are they static characters, more similar to an archetype? Or are they more of a dynamic character? Especially with regard to Mexican Gothic, the very first thing that came to mind was Jane Eyre and sort of this pervasive, spooky environment, uh, the relationship between the environment and the inner life. 
of Jane Eyre in that novel is definitely one of the thematics that is important to the Gothic tradition. And I mean, um, and the other one that came to mind was a picture of Dorian Gray and particularly the treatment of Sybil Vane. She is this sort of beautiful icon of feminine beauty, and she is an incredibly static character. She is the focal point of all this longing, but she barely has any presence of her own, even though she is centrally involved. Um, And of course, thematically, there is some overlap with what's going on plot-wise in A Picture of Dorian Gray and what happens in the action of the novel here. So I think that that's a fairly self-conscious engagement on the part of the author. For me, there are two texts that I think about, but I don't think that they are sort of aligned with Gothic literature formally. But after reading Mexican Gothic especially, I was like, of course, these are related books. Um, And so I'm thinking about um, this one book by Thelani Davis called Maker of Saints. It's less gothic horror and more investigative. Within the text, the characters are exploring similar themes around medicine, around race in particular. And I think the characters, both the living ones and the the ones who have died as, as a part of sort of domestic violence, I think that some people can read them as static characters. But I think that in the course of the investigation, things become revealed about why we sort of conceptualize these characters as, and I wouldn't say characters, but these are archetypes that are attached to the historical time period that this book is being written in, right? And so The Maker of Saints is related to a real life story of a Black woman artist, I believe who was in Harlem, who gets murdered. And the the idea is that her romantic partner is the one who murders her. And her best friend is basically like, I'm about to find all the evidence possible to make sure you are guilty of this crime. And so the whole book is sort of exploring this artist's life, her romantic relationships, and her friend's sort of investigation into it. And so I conceptualize Maker of Saints as related to the sort of Gothic literary tradition. And then the other one that I'm thinking about is Colson Whitehead's The Intuitionist. It is also... (laughs) Um, an investigative text. It doesn't sort of do a lot of gender work, um, or at least it doesn't seem like it is. But it's a really interesting text that I think might be good to explore as using race, gender, class as sort of entrances into sort of investigative or horror, right? So based on my very limited experience with the genre, I think is a genre of tropes. For me, I think the character's Many of them are static, and I think the characters of the genre are used by Gothic authors to kind of explore larger forces that surround and manipulate characters. So um, they're there to be used by the author, so they have to be tropes. And I think some of the horror that readers feel from reading that genre is you know, looking at characters and seeing such static, one-dimensional characters. It's kind of unsettling to see characters like that. Well, for me, at least, because all of the characters that I've read are intentionally fleshed out. Uh, they're made to be very complex. They're made to, what is it, elicit questions from readers and so on. But for the gothic genre, I think that's not the major preoccupation. 
I think something that's interesting about all three of your comments is that you're kind of picking up on Gothic elements that exists even in texts that we might not name as Gothic texts. So for example, Veronica is pointing to Gothic elements in something like detective fiction. Frankie is looking at Gothic elements in Victorian era texts, such as those from Oscar Wilde. And I agree kind of with what you're saying, Naram, about how are more contemporary authors going to maybe move away or nuance those historically static tropes? What does the future of the Gothic look like once those tropes become stale in different traditions? Well, I think for the folks at home, it might be helpful to kind of unpack what we mean by the female Gothic and potential Gothic feminisms. So just as a little bit of literary history. The term female gothic was coined by Ellen Moores, who's a British scholar, in 1974 to describe gothic literature written by and or for women. And in part, Moores argued that gothic literature written by or for women functions as a kind of message in a bottle, particularly for women readers. And what I mean by that is that this tradition represents women's interests and communicates concerns, anxieties, and fears that are specific to non-men. So since 1974, scholars of Gothic literature have become increasingly interested in what we might refer to as subversive Gothics, such as African-American Gothic or queer Gothic, and readers are also increasingly interested in the Gothic's potential subversive technologies. So how do you all see what we might refer to as the female Gothic intersecting or otherwise engaging with Moreno Garcia's vision of a Mexican Gothic? What kinds of literary, but we can also broaden it to talk about what kinds of political potential might that kind of engagement or intersection have to offer? For me, the the main way that I see Moreno Garcia's text as a whole and her vision of the Mexican Gothic intersecting with the more, I don't want to say established, but a little bit established tropes and norms of the female Gothic is just the pervasive, the patriarchal nature of the sort of danger at hand in this text, both before it's recognized as a supernatural horror and after. Noemi is fundamentally in this position where she's sort of being halfway encouraged, halfway discouraged from marrying. And she goes into this spooky house where her cousin has been trapped essentially in this marriage or is is now feeling sequestered, cloistered off. And all of the sort of fear in the novel comes from this subjugated position of being female. And it doesn't matter that Noemi is wealthy It doesn't matter that any of this background is happening here. She is still equally subject to this. And especially toward the end, when so much of the fear comes from this threat of sexual violence, like it's a fundamentally female subject positioned book in those moments. And I think, you know, my reading is that Moreno Garcia is pulling out this sort of particular relationship between these Mexican women and these English men in the book and really exploring the multiple axes of relationship going on here. And one of those is fundamentally that they are women, um, that they are in this situation, but also some of the 
interesting help comes from female sources, particularly, I forget how she's referred to the the curandera. Yes, the curandera. And that sort of like engagement with quote unquote alternative medicine, as we might call it, as sort of this juxtaposition between, you know, this more, it's both Mexican in its sort of roots in culture, but it's also importantly a woman who gives these cures. Yeah, I like the point that you made about Marta Wall, who's a curandera. I think that that relationship to a particularly Mexican medicinal or healer within the community is really interesting and important for this sort of conversation that they're having around medicine and science. But I also think that for me, what I see as Moreno Garcia's particularly Mexican Gothic is is sort of pointing to the colonial presence within Mexico, right? Um, Particularly thinking about the house um, and even sort of the way the house is brought to El Triunfo that is built using Mexican labor and that that they use earth for the cemetery and for the, the, I think, for the foundation of the house that is brought from England. The literal foundation of the house is, is the presence of colonialism or settler colonialism in particular. We might not necessarily attach sort of colonial history, racist history to sort of war, right? But I think in this novel in particular, it can be conceptualized as a particular function of how the Gothic sort of is situated within Mexico or within the the, the place that this novel takes place, which Mariano Garcia talks about towards the end in her appendix items. Um, I think Mariano Garcia grafted onto female Gothic form stories about colonization, specifically Mexico's colonization by the British. And um, I think it's interesting how I think at the center of the female Gothic is women's fears, like you said, Alex, about sexuality, specifically about getting violated, which means getting impregnated. And that's like a very primal fear, I feel like. But then in Mexican Gothic, Marina Garcia shows that it could be related to other fears because getting impregnated by a colonizer, that means something more than just your body getting violated. It's definitely related to um, society in a way that's just not a woman's body being violated by one man. So I think Mexican Gothic makes readers see that by bringing together those two uh, elements. I wanted to make a point about what Naram is saying about violence against women as sort of a particular trope in Gothic feminisms. And I'm thinking about my point about the land. We often feminize land, right? That is Mother Earth, right? And I think of this house and even the invasion of these mushrooms as also sort of a a violence, a, a feminized violence, right? It's just something to ruminate on. So... This is at the end, I think it's on page 314. And Moreno Garcia is talking about the town that the El Triunfo is based on, the Real de Monte. And it's, she says, my novel Mexican Gothic takes place in a chilly fog shrouded town, at the top of a mountain, a town with a deep British influence. For some people, such a locale would seem incompatible with their idea of Mexico. But Mexican Gothic is inspired by a real town complete with an English cemetery. And she, you know, furthermore, starts talking about sort of mining and cheap labor 
And I just, I'm intrigued by the place that it's happening at, right? And I think one of the, something else she said in the book is that sort of gothic horror um, is always sort of situated around a home. She talks about domestic noir, which I thought was really interesting. And then I like, when I first read first couple pages, I was like, oh, it's about to be about some gender stuff. Like this is, we're about to get into it. But I think that sort of having, maybe not from my perspective, as one who's not familiar with the, the genre, having gone into the novel without any sort of preconceived notions and then to get a lot of the sort of background about a gothic really sort of helped me understand what was happening in the text right why it's sort of situated in the domestic sphere because that's sort of the space in which women and femmes are expected to sort of be situated right and we can even sort of see that in the various ways that the Doyle family speaks to Naomi and even sort of conceptualizing Catalina right as like you know women belong here and oh you you have a lot of opinions don't you right and and so I I, I thought the sort of understanding of the gothic and gothic feminisms as particularly situated within the home was really a really important point to have in trying to understand the overall novel. Yeah, just to sort of add on to that, we actually have textually explained that because of the whole fungi situation, Doyle's literally cannot leave uh, the domestic space. And we see the bits and pieces of Florence Doyle who is sort of our interesting foil for Noemi, the woman who accepts her place, who tried to leave and could not leave because of the whole supernatural mushroom situation. In the domestic noir, there's already this sort of like claustrophobia of the home where you can't, you're, you're entrapped. But for the Doyles, it's literal. Um, and then that makes the, the escape, the breaking through from the domestic space at the end, like much more dramatic because it's not just the trope that they have to stay in the house, that all of the action of the novel has to stay in the house. We have this sort of more powerful grounding <laughs> situation for them that keeps them literally tethered um, to this very creepy domestic space. And I think that it's interesting to me the ways that the men are also trapped in the domestic space and they adapt in an interesting way, alternately in a violent way and in a less violent way. I, I don't know. I don't know where I come down yet. I'm still I'm still ruminating on how I read the men in this novel, to be completely honest. But um, that sort of force keeping them all tied in the house is very literalized in the text. Frankie, you brought up a really interesting point about Florence, was that it's that she tried to go away, but she didn't succeed. And now she's tied. She realized she's tied physically. And I think that um, detail helps helped me at least to accept Florence's flatness <laughs> because she is so, so strict. And she keeps repeating that Doyle is a god and things are, you know, going to run as Doyle wants them to run. There's no choice. But she wasn't always like this. She did try to escape. It was because she failed to escape, but she became like this. And I reading that part when that information came up, I was thinking also of Noemi's mom, Noemi's absent mother, practically absent. And that was a very interesting detail 
because Noemi, when she talks about her family, uh, she mentions her father, of course, and she also mentions her brother multiple times, but her mother, she doesn't really think about her mother at all. So I was thinking maybe Noemi's mother also tried to go away, but she got caught and she's now flat like Florence and she has basically no personality. So Noemi doesn't think she deserves her time or something like that. Maybe that could explain why um, Noemi's mother is so conspicuously absent from the narrative. I read Florence differently. I read her as an accomplice, right? That she left the house to do the Doyle duty, which was to go and get this husband and bring him back and create generations, right? Like to to continue the sort of Doyle legacy that she wasn't actually trying to leave. That was my sort of understanding of her, especially because her character was sort of described as like almost an enforcer, right? Even the way she sort of interacted with Noemi and Catalina. And even at the end when she's like holding this gun on her, right? Maybe my reading of her is unapologetic in that she becomes an agent of patriarchy within the the novel and of, I think, colonialism too. And so I don't, I don't know if I have any give for her as a character. (laughs) The other thing is one of the reasons why I think maybe Noami's mother is not included is because she's actually a really strong personality. In some of the descriptions of her mother, she's very vocal, right? And she almost uses the father, I think, in the conversation where Noami is trying to go to school and her mom is like, you need to figure it out. Like you are taking too long. You need to get married. And her dad is saying, hey, we're not going to continue this education for too much longer. Like you're too indecisive. Her mom is like, I'm going to let your dad decide. Not because she didn't already have a decision, but she knew that she would roadblock her child into, and maybe this doesn't mean that she's like on the side of feminism, but (laughs) I think that her mother is very strong willed. And maybe that's why she's sort of not included in this book, right? Because she's not a character that could be sort of subservient or necessarily confined to the domestic sphere, but we don't see her enough for us to like make that judgment call. But the little pieces that I see of her, the way that Naomi describes her makes me think that she's a very strong-willed woman and there was no way she was going to be locked in this house. (laughs) Um, You know what I mean? Yeah, Veronica, I think um, Noemi thinks that her mother is basically like her father. I mean, they want the same. They want her married. But the difference is her mom may be vocal, but she doesn't really have power. So it's like kind of a waste of time in Noemi's point of view to think of any opinion that's not her father. Because it's going to be her father who's going to decide what she's going to be able to do. Also, Veronica, what you said about Florence seems to me dead on. Uh, I didn't mean to imply that Florence, you know, wants to escape for, uh, (laughs) you know, good feminist reasons, just that that sort of bit. And also, of course, the piece of the mystery involving Ruth also gestures at the same point. I think you're absolutely right that Florence becomes an instrument of both the patriarchy and colonialism, especially in the climactic action of the novel, just to just to say that. And I also, I found not just Noemi's mother, but there's some snippets about Catalina's mother who married a stepfather who constantly made Catalina cry. And therefore Catalina is displaced from her family, her immediate family and sort of into Noemi's family. That's why um, we've got layer upon layer of mother issues 
um, including the like metaphorical mother who is the hive mind type thing behind the gloom. And if we've got time to go there, I would love to talk about the moment where Noemi comes across um, the graveyard with the statue of Agnes Doyle. I mean, there are a lot of Gothic scholars who have said that the female Gothic has to always inherently be about the mother. This is just after Noemi gives Catalina the uh, tincture that she believes has harmed Catalina because she is listening to an extent to our spooky doctor man, uh, Dr. Cummings. So after that happens, she leaves the house to go to the cemetery. And we have on page 150, Noemi walked among tombstones and moss and wildflowers, her chin lowered, tucked close against the folds of the sweater that sweater being Francis's sweater. She saw the mausoleum and in front of it, the stone statue of Agnes. Noemi peered up at the statue's face and her hands, which were weathered with speckles of black fungus. She had wondered if there was a plaque or marker with the name of the deceased on it, and she saw that there was. Noemi had overlooked it during her previous visit, although she could hardly be blamed for missing it. The plaque was hidden by an overgrown clump of weeds. She plucked the weeds away and brushed the dirt off the bronze plaque. Agnes Doyle, Mother, 1885. That was all Howard Doyle had chosen to leave behind to commemorate the passing of his first wife. He had said he had not known Agnes well, that she died within a year of their marriage, yet it seemed odd to have a statue carved of her and then not even compose a proper line or two about her passing. It was the nature of the one word etched beneath the woman's name that bothered her too, mother. But as far as Noemi knew, Howard Doyle's children were born of his second marriage, why choose mother as the epithet then? Perhaps she was making too much of this. Inside the mausoleum where the woman's body rested, there might be a proper plaque and a proper message about the deceased. Yet it was unsettling in a way she could not define, like noticing a crooked seam or a tiny stain on a pristine tablecloth. There is a lot there to unpack both, you know, just the evocative imagery in that passage, the role of sort of plants, overgrown foliage, and the fungus on the statue as well being sort of a nod to what we're going to end up seeing later. But as we get at the end of the novel, we know why mother is the epithet. And it's because Agnes Doyle was buried alive and used as the starter, essentially, of the gloom. So she's the mother, in a sense, of all of this current Doyle situation. There's just a lot there. Like that central maternal figure is also the source of the horror. And it's a maternal figure that is forced, right? She doesn't actually reproduce children, but this is forced by... Howard Dole is the essence of the the gloom or the the way that the gloom sort of passes is through Howard Doyle. And so I I think it's really interesting, this like very interesting conversation that Moreno Garcia is having about potentially forced reproduction without the presence of children, especially. Yeah, I just think it's really interesting, particularly in light of Gothic feminisms as being situated in the domestic sphere as sort of colonialism, the fact that colonialism often disrupted reproduction, often disrupted family structures. And what does it mean that this woman is still conceived of as the mother without having necessarily reproduced children, but she kind of has, but it's been a forced reproduction. Yeah, for sure. And in the intensely terrifying, I think probably the most terrifying passage of the book where Noemi sees Agnes's body, she describes her as a monstrous virgin in a cathedral of mycelium. So that idea of both this sort of 
violation of motherhood with the intact sort of innocence thing going on too. There's there's a lot there. Yeah, the idea of monstrous virginity, I think, is so interesting in this novel. That's a phrase that I like. It's like a little worm in my brain. It stays in there because normally, and especially in contemporary Gothic horror, virginity, purity, is the thing that is guaranteed to save female or like femme characters. And yet, I think Moreno Garcia is definitely playing with that trope. I'm wondering if we can spend a few moments thinking about Noemi, because it is all but impossible to discuss Mexican Gothic without discussing Noemi Tabuada. So throughout the novel, Noemi demonstrates interests in many traditionally feminine practices and ideas. And many of those are historically accurate to mid-century, early 1950s Mexico. So for example, she enjoys dating attractive men like the all but forgotten Hugo Duarte. She's interested in contemporary fashion and makeup, and she's incredibly socially competent. She enjoys having that socialite lifestyle. However, Noemi might complicate readers' potential expectations for a kind of hyper-feminine gothic protagonist. She's an avid reader across a variety of disciplines. She, for instance, has a bachelor's degree in anthropology, and she wants to get her master's degree in anthropology as well. She's typically very confident in conversations with authority figures, most of which in the novel are men. So I'm just curious, what do you think of Noemi? Do you think she effectively counters readers' expectations for a helpless gothic heroine? Are you charmed or annoyed by her? What are your impressions of her? You know, I initially really liked her. I was like, oh, she a badass smoking a cigarette. (laughs) And as soon as she sort of goes to this house, the house's influence on her it's really striking, right? That she's this, you know, social butterfly, very much in command of herself. And she's being forced to fall in line with sort of these gendered expectations. And she's struggling with it, which I like, right? That she's not like, okay, I'm gonna just go with the program. She's like, no, actually, no, that doesn't make sense. I don't ascribe to those values. I don't think that I have to be forced to, what is it she saying? She says to Francis. And I think they're talking about Ruth. And she says, this is on page 136. She wanted to run away with her lover. Instead, she ended up shooting her whole family. I don't understand why she do what she did. Why didn't she run away from High Place? Surely she could have simply left. Francis says, you can't leave High Place. But you can. She was an adult woman. You're a woman. Can you do anything you want? Even if it upsets your family? Technically, I can. Even if I wouldn't every single time. Naomi said she thought she, though she immediately remembered her father's issues with scandals and the fear of the society pages, would she ever risk an outright rebellion against her family? And I I think that she's sort of being forced because of the circumstances of this house and the gloom and all these forces to sort of reconceptualize her place in the world as a woman, as a daughter, as someone who's wealthy, which I think is really interesting for her. My largest issue with Noemi was that it seemed as though she was not making logical connections. Like, you know, in a horror movie, when they decide to split up and you're like, 
have, aren't, don't you guys have any sense of genre awareness? Don't you know what kind of movie you're in? Don't split up. She did have a tendency to do the exact wrong thing, which I, I lost patience with a bit. I actually think that Noemi is an interesting protagonist who gets some interesting subversions going on, but also she's having spooky dreams and then starts reading young, but doesn't leave the house. And I get that she doesn't want to leave Catalina, but at a certain point, man, why doesn't self-preservation kick in for her? And maybe that's in her favor. Um, maybe that's something that will serve her well in some context. But I I was sort of yelling at the book a little bit, like, girl, get out of there, which I suppose is the genre convention to have your protagonist make stupid choices sometimes. But one of the things, and I, this relates to reactions to the ending a little bit, Noemi is subversive without ever subverting anything. She doesn't subvert anyone's expectations in the novel. She has this playful sort of how far can I bend the rules mentality. She knows she can kiss the boys, but she can't have sex with them. She knows exactly what she can do to push the envelope just enough without ever actually risking any damage to herself. And that is evident in her, that self-conscious thinking on her part. And that to me is one of the <laughs> available reparative readings of the ending with her apparent romance with Francis is that fundamentally she's not somebody who's going to subvert expectations. So why should her ending um, subvert the norm of a gothic, even a female gothic novel? One of the famous, I don't know who coined this, but there's an idea in like sort of subversive proto-feminist literature that you can put it through the marriage or death test, which is if at the end of the novel, the heroine is married, then she is subversive in a way we as a reader are supposed to support. If the protagonist ends the book dead, um, it is supposed to be a warning to the audience that if you behave this way. So famously, the other famous example that is usually referenced in this kind of a conversation is Jane Eyre. A lot of people find the fact that, spoilers for Jane Eyre, I guess, um, that Jane ends up marrying Rochester, unsatisfying ending, but if she ended unmarried, that would actually signal that we're not supposed to replicate her life choices. We're not supposed to be subversive or intellectually curious in the way that she is. I think Noemi is just the right amount of subversive not to ruffle any feathers. And I think that that is a trait she has cultivated about herself. That's an interesting point. I mean, I totally sympathize with what you're saying, Frankie, about Noemi makes some frustrating choices, especially with getting Catalina out of that house. Like at a certain point, you're like, Noemi, let's pack it up. Let's steal the car keys. Let's get Catalina out of that house in the middle of the night. Like do whatever you have to do to just remove yourselves from the situation. Then we have to reconsider the question, how many choices that Noemi makes in high place is she actually making with a clear head? And how much of that complacency is being kind of forced upon her because of the gloom? You know what I mean? And so maybe if we were going to give a sympathetic read of maybe someone like Florence too, if we're going to doubt her her complicity. And I love what you said, Veronica, about the Doyle duty of tricking people like a spider to come back to the center of the web that's high place. So I wonder if maybe that's a way we can give a more generous reading of Noemi's choices once she's in high place. Yeah. And the destruction of choice is such a fascinating thematic going on. And that's another of my ways to read the ending. But we know that some 
of her choices are not her own. What's scary about the removal of choice in the gloom isn't just that the characters don't have a choice and we see that happening, but that they feel that they have made the choice. Like it phenomenally is agential would be the way to put that. Um, It's the feeling of these characters is that they are freely choosing. And I think we see Francis wrestle with that at the end too. And sort of throughout you see Francis as soon as they're away from the house, that's when he gives Noemi his sweater. That's when they have this sort of behavior going on, which is that the gloom? Is it not the gloom? That's a fascinating question. Is the gloom fundamentally tied to high place and how much of a perimeter? But we know that there's some sort of prickly relationship to agency going on, which does affect how you read every single character's choices and actions. And my reading of the ending is, is that in fact, the gloom is not gone. I don't think it's gone either. I would not be surprised if there was a sequel in the works. We've talked about Florence. We've talked about Naomi. But I'd love to talk about Catalina as, other than Florence, the most active female or feminized captive. And how, in some ways, it feels like she has been allowed as a character to subvert the power of the gloom by getting this, the medicine, the tincture from Marta Duval, from sending this letter to her cousin to solicit help from having these very sporadic, lucid moments where she could express to Naomi what's happening, you know, that sort of slip of the the diary entry that she passes to her. And she's doing this all under the the power of the gloom, right? In particular of Doyle. And I wondered to how much this house that has Agnes as the mother, right? How much to thinking about these ghosts that sort of appear to to Naomi are, they're aiding in hopefully the destruction of, or the freedom of these female characters, right? Even in Florence, she dies. So she's not under the purview of the Doyle men anymore. But I just think it's really interesting to think about Catalina being under the forces of the gloom and being still able to have some agency in trying to get out, even though she can't necessarily physically leave her room and go out of the house. And even at the end, I love the scene where she just like starts stabbing Howard Doyle. That was just, I was just like, absolutely. Thank you. A round of applause. (laughs) Because I really wanted him to just like get his due diligence. And she comes through really, you know, but on the side of the gloom, I don't think it's over. And I think Francis is concerned. He's worried that this still feels a little sketchy. I still feel some things. And I think that, again, Naomi is not listening. He said these things to her, like, I think I should go back. I should, I think I should just like end um, the entire thing. And she's like, oh, it's fine. We'll, you know, burn it down later. or We can go back later, but I don't think it's that easy. I think it's interesting the idea that Catalina is under the influence of the fungus because it's, I've been thinking about how it's Catalina who brings Noemi to the house. She specifically mentions Noemi in her letter and it wasn't really clear to me why she would pinpoint Noemi because they didn't really seem to have a strong relationship. Noemi, I feel like, constantly looks down on Catalina as this very girl who you now because she makes a bad choice regarding husband um but i think it's very it's horrific when you think about how it might have been the house calling to Noemi through catalina and it might have been doyle somehow pulling this uh, girl he thinks would be a good addition to his collection 
I was just so frustrated about Noemi and Catalina's relationship because Noemi doesn't really. It doesn't really seem to sink into her that Catalina is not this fairy tale obsessed woman who used to be helpless. She's not that person. But even until the very end, Noemi is thinking of Catalina in those terms, thinking that oh, Catalina seems fine now. She's back to my Catalina. I thought that was incredibly frustrating. I think that part was more frustrating to me than Noemi's decision to kiss Francis for love, whatever that means. Yeah, it is interesting that all of the. Ending a reader could argue is geared towards the romantic bow that's put upon Noemi and Francis's relationship, even if perhaps the edges of that bow are a little frayed and actively fraying. And in fact, it would be very much in line with what Howard Doyle wanted in the first place if Naomi and Francis ended up together, right? And so again, you have the continuation of the gloom and high place, especially if his sort of hypothesis about Naomi's match with the gloom and with the house actually comes to fruition. You know, if the the whole story goes how it's supposed to or expected to, which is they fall in love, they, you know, marry, have children, I don't know if that's actually going to happen, but there's so many options that could occur that I think is really interesting that it still falls in line with the expectation of Doyle and potentially the continuation of the gloom because of this decision that she's about to make about love. You're about to create a new generation of the gloom. What is that weird joke that Noemi makes when she finds out she's going to be at this forced wedding ceremony with Francis? She makes some bizarre attempt at humor where she says something like, what, am I supposed to be married in the church of the holy incestuous mushroom? And it's kind of like, well, Noemi, the way things are going at the end, you still might be married in the church of the holy incestuous mushroom. I went back and and looked and the last mention of Catalina is on 296. Catalina took one last look at the young man and closed the door behind her. And I like to think that that means that Catalina said, peace out. I am done with this. I am getting out of here. I also think, you know, the idea that you brought up, Naram, that maybe Catalina lured Noemi to the house is interesting, especially with that explanation that Howard, I believe, gives that Noemi just like is more susceptible. She's a more perfect match with the mycelium network than Catalina. I'm not sure how Catalina would know that, but it seems like Catalina does have this ability to be lucid at times. And that whether that's just because she has the tincture from Marta and that allows her to have some agency there. But importantly, the letter gets sent as Catalina's failsafe. And so I think it's interesting to consider how many layers of manipulation from the gloom could be at play here because it's very much open to the reader's interpretation whether any of the choices made in this novel are freely done. If we believe that Noemi and Francis do in fact end up together at the end of the novel, one, I would just love to know if their relationship makes sense to you as a reader or as a scholar or both. But then additionally, as a scholar and in this conversation about the female Gothic, what are some of the perhaps implications of that romantic relationship? Veronica, you mentioned that it is kind of an extension of what Howard Doyle wanted all along. They will potentially end up together. But does Francis and Noemi's perhaps romantic relationship tarnish any of her previous characterization as a kind of strong, intelligent young woman? Or is that thinking in itself antiquated? And do you think that Noemi will actually pursue her master's degree in anthropology? 
The most interesting thing to me, both as a reader and from a scholarly sort of perspective, is that Noemi spends the early portions of the novel continuously reminding us that Francis is ugly. So there is there is kind of a nice reading of their relationship about her going from the source of surface level, I will let it get this far and no further situations like with Hugo Duarte, to sort of a more, you know, it's probably a trauma bond. Like, I think we could say that. I don't think there was no chemistry between them. I did hope that this would not be the ending. And I was disappointed. But I do think that there are some interesting readings of the ending, both that are, this is genuinely a romantic, you know, for love situation and that this is still the gloom. I know which of those I favor. I think... On second reading, I think it's uh, intentionally written in a way that's not clear because it says for love and it could be Noemi kissing Francis because she wants love. She doesn't really feel it right now, but love is what she wants. And she thinks maybe a kiss could be the start of love. And I thought that because there is this weird moment in the novel earlier, way back when Francis looks at the house and says, this place isn't made for love. And Noemi says, any place is made for love. And I thought that was quite uncharacteristic of her. But if you go back to that moment and link it to this, maybe love is what she wants, really. (laughs) Could be, who knows? yeah i from the beginning when francis was introduced was like i hope she does not end up with francis (laughs) i was like i hope this does not end up going this way and it's for me it's purely because his family is just it's wild right like i just i could not conceive of advising anyone to join that family or a member of that family and i i say this because i actually think i really like francis as a character i actually think that he does try to help. He seems like of all of his family members, other than Ruth, that we've been sort of introduced to, is the one that actually wants to leave and can sort of see the issues and troubles with High Place, with the men in his family, with the gloom. But he's trapped, right? And I don't, I think he wants to make sure other people are not trapped. And so even though I think he knew he had consequences, even though I think he knew the gloom sort of power, he was sort of like, I'm going to help you subvert it in the ways that I can. But I just, I don't want Naomi to end up with anybody. I want her to be just like this single girl boss who just like exists to like, you know, date and romance and be the, you know, socialite who doesn't, who's not necessarily tied down, right? I think for me, it would be a really cool opportunity for her to sort of subvert all of these, the ways that patriarchy is showing up in her lives from like her father to the Doyles to this expectation that she falls in love and does the the very sort of normalized thing within the domestic sphere right and I don't I don't want that future for her and on the point of whether or not she's gonna get a graduate degree in anthropology I'm unsure I think that's one of the things that I'm most unsure about and it's partly because I think of the conversations around eugenics and around sort of her understandings of like environment I wouldn't be surprised if she was like I'm gonna do environmental justice Like, I wouldn't be surprised if that was not something that she chose to do, right? Like, her and Francis together could be, he could be, like, drawing topography in the environment, and she could be researching it, right? I could see her doing something related to, like, science and medicine and the environment, maybe, potentially, from some of the clues throughout the text. 
I do think there's something kind of sweet about their bond. Like, even though it's creepy when you like know what happened, there's something sweet about their bonding moment over his mushroom spore prints. He's clearly a huge nerd. And I do think that's nice. But genuinely, I just think that I would have liked more ambiguity about how Noemi was thinking about it, maybe. Or, you know, I maybe I just feel like we needed like one more scene um, to give us some context about what would happen. And especially, I mean, I don't want things wrapped up in a neat little bow at the end of any novel, but especially not one with as many open questions. But like particularly um, to vibe with something Veronica said, this man was raised by a straight up eugenicist and he doesn't straight up say super horrible things to Noemi, but he comes close. And the idea that she has zero reservations about that is very troubling, especially given her reaction when she first has a conversation with Howard. And you see her in that moment go like, okay, I'm just going to ignore this and try it and hope it hope it goes away. But yeah, I I think they've got a lot of unpacking to do. Yes, let's hope that as soon as they get to Mexico City, they are enrolled in couples therapy ASAP. That's like item number one on the new couple agenda. Or maybe they're just best friends in love, you know, like they can also just be best friends. That's that, true. I think that that is also a great ending. <laughs> All right, that concludes our conversation for today. Thank you so much to our wonderful guests, Frankie, Naram, and Veronica. It's been a pleasure discussing this topic and this novel with all three of you, and I am more than certain our listeners will be thrilled with what you've had to say. For the folks at home, if you'd like more information about the Purdue English Big Read, please visit the Big Read section of the Purdue English Department's website, where we have a wonderful archive of materials about previous Big Read selections, including a schedule for this fall's remaining Big Read events. Thanks for joining us. This is Alex Anderson with the Big Read Podcast. <laughs>